All right. Episode two of Reality Quest podcast. Welcome back. Yeah. Thanks for coming back, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't even think she's listened to episode one yet. My mom has definitely listened to the first oh, episode. Oh, man. Come on, Mom. <laughs> Get with the program. Anyways. All right. So this episode was Tom Furness. Now, most people in the industry know Tom. who Tom Furness is. He yeah. is known as the grandfather of VR. The reason for that, for anyone that doesn't know Tom Furness for any reason, or if you're new to the industry, he's known as the grandfather of VR because... Mm -hmm. He created what is known as the super cockpit for the Air Force. Yeah, yeah. Early on, um, back in the 60s or 70s, I believe, yeah. he started working on this project and it basically became one of the first virtual interfaces that was built um, with the purpose of allowing pilots to interact with the the plane and their complicated interface. It turned out that later on, like in the 80s, that started becoming declassified information. Mm -hmm. And it ended up becoming the foundation for the hardware as we know it for yeah. VR. A lot of the things that he worked on and invent invented back then are actually still being used in uh, various hardware and technologies these days. So right. it's really kind of incredible that all those things happened so early on. Yeah. And, and since then, Tom has gone on to do other things. He left the Air Force in order to further this technology. He started the Human Interface Technology Lab. Mm -hmm. I think he still teaches at UW, right? He's a professor yeah. there? Yeah, he's yeah. still a professor there in the engineering uh, department. And uh, he, he actually he had founded the HIT Lab there, right? So like that was why we right. actually got started at UW right. uh, years ago. Yep. And then um, his latest endeavor is... Virtual World Society. Mm -hmm. So they're a nonprofit um, that basically has the overarching mission of trying to evangelize and share the technology um, of XR with communities that can benefit from it, communities of need. Yeah. And it's all about like connecting people. Yeah, yeah. So now people who are in the industry, they're probably like, yeah, we love Tom. He's amazing. We know about the super <laughs> cockpit, blah, 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 you know. Yeah. Yeah. But We've here's the thing. Before. Yeah. <laughs> We sat down with Tom for two hours. We had an amazing conversation. Yeah, he he's just one of those people who you could hear him talk forever. He has oh, so yeah. many amazing stories, an amazing history. But beyond that, his outlook on all of this technology and and just life in general. That human connection. Yeah. And inspiring ideas. Just it, it was really moving. Yeah. For me, I, I, I hope that that comes across in the recording, but I felt like just so grateful that I got to be the one sitting down across from him and yeah. hearing his history, hearing his whole life story. Honestly, this whole episode is really about his life story, way more than the technology that he ended up building. I think anytime you sit down with Tom and really get to dig into uh, his backstory and, and where he comes from and how he was really inspired by all these things, it's just, it's incredible uh, the kinds of things that he's witnessed, seen, the things that he's accomplished himself, and then over time, the the perspective and outlook that he has for the future, that whole overview effect that that we get into and um, it's, it's all really kind of an amazing way to look at the potential that this technology has. And, and so, yeah. Anyways, I think that's pretty much it. Like yeah, yeah. we should stop talking and just get into it. We hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah. 
Did you meet my grandson? You didn't meet my grandson. Uh, I actually, I have met Dante before. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but Dante uh, was here with me, and we uh, we spent a couple of weeks in Canada and, and uh, uh, with the family, and then uh, came back. And last week, we went to the, um, I don't know if you've heard of IONS, I-O-N-S, Ions. No. Institute of Noetic Sciences. Noetic sciences. Oh yeah, I've this never... is uh, this was. <laughs> what formed... does that mean? <laughs> Noetic means having to do with an, um, basically a spiritual uh, ESP, uh, all those kinds of things. Yeah, uh, but uh, that was formed uh, about uh, 40, 45 years ago by Edgar Mitchell, who was one okay. of the Apollo astronauts who walked on the moon. Okay, and. Uh, Anyhow, we were there at this, and it is a pretty far out. Thing. I mean, you have you have ministers there, you have scientists, you have yoga practice people, you have uh, uh, political people. Deepak Chopra was there, and, oh really? Uh, Ru- Rupert Sheldrake and all these uh, notable guys. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was really profound. Have it you was, have you read much from uh, from Deepak Chopra? Mm-hmm. I um, have. How do you feel about the just like the, I guess your general sentiment from from reading through a lot of his material? I started to explore one of his books more recently, and well, I mean, it's uh, he's a thought leader, and uh, <laughs> he, in the sense that he is an aggregator, though I don't think he yeah. necessarily originates all these things as yeah. much as he aggregates. And I know he's a controversial figure amongst mm. uh, the biologists and people like that. But, <laughs> wow, I mean, it's provocative what he's saying. Yeah. yeah. This last time, this this one was the most far out one of all that uh, makes <laughs> you think. What was he saying? And, well, he's pretty much saying, well, I mean, we started off with the, you know, he went through all these universes. That yeah. We started, we started off with the classical universe and mm-hmm. then we went to the quantum universe and all these different things. And now we're going to the consciousness universe that yeah. really, and I mean, we we put in the past, what we've done is put physics on the bottom. Everything sort of yep. has to do with physics. Like it has to be built up. Physics and chemistry and biology, and then it goes on up, to, and finally you get to consciousness, right? Yeah. And what he and others, like Dean Radden, who's an eminent scientist in the Institute of Nodetic Sciences, mm-hmm. says really that's the opposite because science is at its end. And um, because what, where you go now with uh, elementary particle physics? Yeah, you know, I guess. I mean, you're sort of blasting these uh, quarks <laughs> around and, and uh, you're getting all these new things and you're trying mm. to interpret them. You're going after the God particle and all this kind of thing, the yeah. Higgs boson. And uh, the problem, of course, is that, um, uh, you know, and, and it goes back to the observer effect. Yeah. The observer yeah. effect is that you, know, you aren't independent. Mm-hmm. Of the experiments that you're doing, and everything is connected. Yeah, is obser- or observing them has an immediate impact. Absolutely, the- you know the double slit experiment and all that yeah. stuff that was done, and so this has a measurable effect. Yeah. And what this Institute of Noetic Sciences has been doing is researching this for a number of years and showing mm-hmm. we can actually statistically prove that consciousness has an effect yeah. on matter and on on reality. Yeah, what we call reality. So the uh, the. The story is that that uh, what we really have mm-hmm. is uh, the universe going to these different universes. The universe of consciousness is that yeah. everything really <laughs> is formed as a result of consciousness. Yeah, and that then um, 
physics as we normally think about it, mm. uh, um, um, Newtonian mechanics and quantum mechanics and all these kind of things yeah. actually arise from consciousness. And that, in, and that that is the foundation. Rather than it be on the top, it's actually on the bottom. Yeah, which is a very <laughs> clearly a very controversial but really interesting idea at the mm-hmm. same time. And it's and hard this to is what This is what Deepak Chopra is saying <laughs> yes. at, that, at that conference. Yeah. yeah. Well, he and others uh, have, are basically saying that. And uh, yeah. uh, this is some of his latest thought. He has some, uh, of course, some books and collaborators out in this, this mm. uh, particular area but i think the more recent one was uh, you are the universe yes right that's yeah. the idea and that yeah. that we're all really connected it's sort of like the idea that um when you look at the surface of things mm. for example uh you are in the hawaiian islands and you <laughs> you're you're looking um uh, above the surface of the water and there you see all these islands and yeah. these islands are distinct individual islands and so you think about them as individuals but if you go underwater, you find out that they really are all connected. <laughs> right. Part of the same substrate. The they are. Way. And all part of the same. And there's just manifest, manifested what we see above this. Yeah. And so this idea of um, where does that boundary exist? If we lower ourselves in the boundary, that boundary, mm-hmm. sort of like Dip going to the water, water yeah. <laughs> then we begin to see, wow, it's all connected. And this is what happened with Edgar Mitchell. Edgar Mitchell, um, uh, as the story goes, uh-huh. um, he was on Apollo 14. Okay. This is after Apollo 13, which, of course, was um, sort of dicey, you know, in terms of getting the guys back alive. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Apollo 14, it was probably the, the, the biggest scientific mission that was actually okay. done by NASA. And uh, and he's a, has a PhD from MIT and mm. and is uh, in addition to being an aviator, you know, he is a, a really smart man. And yeah. just so, for a little bit of historical context, what do you are you familiar with? What was specifically being studied for Apollo fourteen? Well, scientifically, well, certainly they were trying to do the same kinds of things they were doing on uh, Apollo. 11. Apollo eleven really was uh, just saying we. We put our foot on the moon, you yeah, know, and we that, got there. Uh, we got there, and <laughs> we, we collected a little dust around the uh, uh, the the um, limb, and uh, you know, and uh, a few rocks and things like that. And, um, and they didn't know if it was going to sink in. They really didn't know yeah. what uh, what to expect. But um, uh, once they sort of bounced around on the moon and found out that they could, you know, this is uh, going to be a fairly benign place to do these kind of things. <laughs> Um, so Apollo 11 was to seriously look at the geograph- uh, geological uh, Formation. um, formations okay. and things like that and collect different kinds of rocks. And, yeah. and they selected the site for that. Uh, and so, yes, it was um, – there, there was a, a prescribed mission. Of course, it was a longer mission too. Yeah, and, for 14. Uh, yeah. Okay. And um, I don't recall how many um, hours they were on the moon, but much longer than on Apollo 11. Gotcha. So the um, Edgar Mitchell um, was the commander of Apollo 14 mm-hmm. and was the commanded and, and flew the uh, lunar exploration module. Yeah. And, um, and then what happened was when he was, uh, they were back and rendezvoused with the, the Apollo capsule and were heading back home, mm-hmm. um, the capsule was rotating 
slowly, you know, in order to keep the temperature uh, equal across the whole oh, yes, uh, capsule, just... distribute the temperature. Mm-hmm. It was rotating. So what would happen is that it would sweep, the earth would sweep through and mm-hmm. then the, the stars and then the moon and then the earth and the stars and the moon slowly. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point around. in time, as he tells it, he had this epiphany. He says, we're all stardust. <laughs> we all came from the same thing. Yeah. And that we're all connected. And he said it was profound. He would see the earth in the distance. And he, that little orb that we all associate with, he's about as far away from the earth as anybody's got. <laughs> little, you know? little blue dot. Little blue dot. <laughs> and, he, and he said, wow, you know, this. Uh, and he, what he did basically is fall in love with the earth. Yeah. <laughs> and it was what what is phenomenon is called the overview effect, that you have this perspective where it's sort of like going underwater in the yeah. case of the Hawaiian Islands, and you say, wow, everything is sort of connected. And that means yeah. that that we are connected, mm-hmm. that humans are connected, and that we are we may think of ourselves as these individual islands, mm-hmm. but we're really in a way there is a part of us that there's is a substance of everybody. There's like a deep shared origin yes. from just where we all came from. Yes. There's no separating that. How is that thought process different from a lot of people already believe we come from like, you know, evolution. There's one human being or two people or something that we all evolved from in <laughs> Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how does this differ from that idea? Well, I'm not sure that it's, uh, uh, they're sort of two different questions in a way. The uh, evolutionary idea, of course, is, is has to do with with um, nature experimenting with itself and uh, finding out what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And uh, the things that uh, does work uh, seem to be you know, survivable, and the yeah. ones that don't work don't, don't survive. It's you know, it's almost this this whole. There's kind of a dichotomy I feel like between like traditional science thus far has been really trying to uh, deconstruct the sort of romanticism around um, the sort of interconnectedness between everything mm-hmm. and sort of any religious or spiritual element to it. It's like trying to get to the bottom so that you can explain it and understand fully. But now we're moving back to this point again where we're just having to confront the the very stark limit of what we understand. Well, yes. And uh, I mean, part of the theme in this conference was mm-hmm. about the there really is very little difference between religion and science, yeah, and that this <laughs> itself is one, and the, and this whole notion of the that there is a part of us that is all connected, the, and mm-hmm. we we use various terms for that, but the spiritual side of it, the spirit that yeah. we have, and that this connectedness um, is necessary for us to awaken the greatest uh, that we can become, yeah, and especially when we start appreciating that when one of those islands, one of those people are affected, we are affected. Yeah. It's not like we're individual by ourselves. Mm. And so um this whole notion of of not only connectedness but of love mm. that that you're sending signals that and you you begin to appreciate there is another part of you that's outside of what you consider your body. Yeah. yeah. That is a 
Now, the, back to the evolution question, you know, how does this, how do these different uh, scientific traditions fit together? Um, they are scientific traditions, you know, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're <laughs> yeah. sort of making this up. We're trying to figure things right. out. But there is another thought of um, this notion of uh, that Rupert Sheldrake talks about in terms Rupert of morphic, morphic resonance. And uh, he has uh, studied this for many years, and that that it's not just evolution. There is a resonance of memory that happens, mm-hmm. and that uh, that nature helps construct itself based upon this natural resonance. For example, one of the ex- uh, one of the um, situations he talks about is uh-huh. that how all of a sudden people start coming up with the same idea. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like, and and it, and and, and it, uh, and so you have all these inventions that are basically the same thing. And what yeah, causes that, that, that to happen? happen to coincide in time? Yeah, and this coincidence. Just, that's yeah. like what we were talking about zeitgeist. You know, the zeitgeist yeah. of the time. There's mm-hmm. a connection of how spirit did, and thought. How did you put that the other day? You said it was the spirit. It's of the spirit the, of the time of the people of the time. Spirit mm-hmm. of the people yes. of the time. Yes. Right, and it's often like very connected and on the same level which obviously makes sense because people are going through some of the same things but i also like this theory that it's there's something else pushing it as well it's not because that's just more people could think of that as just reactive but what is what is the cause yeah it's like almost i want to believe that there is a little bit more beyond just the sort of physical environment that we are so familiar with Mm -hmm. that is affecting those sort of confluence of ideas and and things well, I think that's what Sheldrake is saying, that mm. it's back to your point. It's a push rather than just sort of uh, the roll of the dice. Right. Mm-hmm. And that there's more going on in just uh, nature experimenting. There is something underneath it mm-hmm. that's pushing it along. Now, some people would say, well, that's sort of God that's yeah, pushing it yeah. along. That's like oh, the spirit yeah, of the, spirit. the world. Or, yeah. Or, yeah, those kinds of things. So uh, when you start put, putting all these into the cauldron— <laughs> and so see what boils out. You come up with this greater view, this sort of this this overview idea that uh, wow, there's more going on than we think, mm-hmm. and there's more connectedness than we think, um, and that we have a stewardship. We have a responsibility yeah. <laughs> to um, not only to our Earth, mm-hmm. uh, which is also a being. It's sort of a being, a, yeah. a Gaia. That sort of it's alive. Mm-hmm. It has, a, it breathes, you know. And that, uh, um, but we also have this responsibility to each other, mm-hmm. um, because what we send out with our thoughts mm-hmm. affects everything. Yeah, it affects <laughs> other people. It affects you know the trees and the flowers and the birds, and it affects yeah. uh, even the inanimate objects. Mm-hmm. Because it all has consciousness, all of it has consciousness and has free will. Yeah. Uh, or and so, if um, you know, you think about that. If everything has said free will. You know, they have to. They get to decide <laughs> what to do with that free will. And there are things to act and things to be acted upon. Yes. But, yeah. In response um, to your environment. Right. But so it's it's really makes for a whole different shift in perspective. I'm. I'm Arthur C. Clarke mm-hmm. um, uh, wrote uh, a book called Childhood's End. And uh, Childhood's End is about basically civilizations growing up. Yeah. 
and that's what maturity. We, yeah, I mean, we've got to do that, don't we? I mean, we <laughs> we have to grow up as a civilization and realize we have a lot of responsibility, mm-hmm. and it, and it's not just something happening to us. Yeah. We're causing it to happen, <laughs> and that we need to um, sort of. Use what we have, the power that we yeah. have, power of our thought, the power of our intention, mm-hmm. uh, to help um, heal and bring <laughs> together and uh, these things that are 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 happening. I mean, we're yeah. in a in a way uh, that one of the other speakers talking about uh, uh, Mother Earth that uh, well, we've gotten past the point of where we. Um, Earth is a mother. I mean, Earth was giving yeah. us everything, right? Yep. We were taking everything. We were sort of a one-way street. We yeah. were taking all the resources and things like that. And now the Mother Earth is dying. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. literally like the cycle of life. It's As, like the kids. It's time to take care of you right. know, your yeah. parents. Yeah. That's like, right. Exactly. We have, we have yeah. inherited yeah. this sort of... Uh, <laughs> yeah, the dowry from from Mother Earth, and now it's our responsibility to to carry it forward. So, in a way, this childhood's end is to get out of the uh, Mother Earth idea to a lover Earth idea, mm-hmm. where we need to have a love relationship with the Earth, where there is an exchange. Mm-hmm. We're not just taking mm-hmm. like we did as a child. Right. We're now together. We're one. Yeah, mm-hmm. and how do we? Um, thrive together. And uh, Mother Earth is sort of sitting there. Uh, we're sort of in a courtship mode here, right? We're, well, uh, Mother Earth's waiting to say, okay, Mother Earth is dying, old age, things like that, you know, yeah. is waiting to see just what are you going to do in this courtship and whether Mother Earth is going to say, okay, I'm willing to partner with you. Right. Uh, or I'm out of well, here. Or I'm out of here. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> if we don't recognize that we're in a courtship mode, then we're going to... Um, lose our lover. We're going to lose our mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, of course, the the other end of that is we do become one. I mean, that we finally, after this courtship, we have this marriage and we are able to save our civilization. Yeah. Like maybe that is the thing that, that gives us a, a more unified direction mm-hmm. is as that problem becomes less and less avoidable <laughs> mm-hmm. or maybe something that can be ignored so easily. Um, that is the sort of unifying force that, that right. helps us cultivate a healthier uh, forward progress for yeah. humanity. But, and this is sort of a good segue for virtual reality. Yes. <laughs> because uh, the uh, I was there because of uh, virtual reality. And, yeah. Uh, I was just going to ask like why a, you were at that conference. Yeah, I was invited. <laughs> where, where was this conference? It was in Santa Clara. Okay, and, I want to go and, to the next. Yeah, one. I yeah. Love it's a, it's a California thing, but uh, it it was fantastic. It was really the best conference I've ever been in, really? been to, and in terms of the diversity and the spirit of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a lot of breathing and you know, and <laughs> and you know, and and uh, sending that's out what we need good right spirits. Now. That's right, oh, man. That's what we all need. Yeah, and it it was you know, it a uh, lot of uh, mindfulness practice and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But anyhow, one of the things that they uh, they wanted me to talk about is virtual reality and this idea that just like Edgar Mitchell, mm-hmm. everyone can have an overview effect. Yeah, that use that powerful empathy. Of That's VR. right. And so in a way, what we do is we can put everyone into the situation where they're in the capsule 
and they can see the earth. Let me tell you a little story about this, that because <laughs> okay. uh, that, I had my own epiphany, an overview effect right. that happened. Um, so I now I've been working on virtual reality for now 53, 54 years, something like mm-hmm. that. And uh, I was one of the original pioneers and, um, uh, I heard you're the grandfather. The grandfather. The, the grandfather. <laughs> grandfather. Well, um, yeah. yeah. Well, that means I'm just this old guy and I have to still be standing. And, uh, uh, but, like, uh, yeah. but I mean, uh, you do that <laughs> I'm not sure where it came from. You you know? <laughs> I mean, somebody called me, uh, you know, they talked about what is this? There's some other terms I've gotten, you know. Uh-oh. Uh, um, uh, the, uh, oh gosh, now I'm spacing on the name of the. Hogwarts. Um, oh, Dumbledore? Dumbledore. Dumbledore. I'm the Dumbledore of the air. For some reason, I was like, being, I was like Hagrid, and I was like, that's just, uh, Hagrid. that doesn't make any sense. No, not a <laughs> I don't know. Hagrid would be sort of cool. Actually. He would be, you know. Like just, maybe you want a Hagrid. That's going to be the, the new Hagrid name. Of- <laughs> I'm submit it to your Wikipedia. Uh, that's the. <laughs> anyway, well, something I've called Tom for that's the Hagrid yeah. of Venus. Yeah, yeah. So your story, yeah. yeah. So as uh, so over these these years, you know, I I've been working on this technology, and and I always wanted to be my. As a child, mm-hmm. I wanted to be an astronaut myself because oh, yes. when I was in the seventh grade uh, was when they had the, in 1957, that's when they had the mm-hmm. International Geophysical Year. And this was a big deal. I remember in school okay. we were talking about it. This was the, the year where nations around the world were going to really investigate what's in the exosphere around our planet, you know. Yeah. And uh uh, they were going to we we're going to start orbiting satellites to sample what's up there and things like that. And the U.S. was going to have this um, organization, NASA's sort of being formed at the the time. And yeah, and uh, the idea was that we we're going to put up this civilian satellite using civilian rockets and things like that, or non-military rockets. Oh, okay, and. Um, and so um, in 1957, mm-hmm. we were everybody's getting getting prepared for that, and all school kids were excited and things like that. And <laughs> and uh, then the Russians orbited yeah. Sputnik, <laughs> and everybody in the U.S. My parents were yeah. terrified. You know, here you've got this satellite going over. The Russians are watching us and things yeah. like that, and and everybody was all worried. And I thought it was pretty cool, actually. And <laughs> like they, they did. And and, they and I built How a short. How old were you at this time? I was. Um, I must have been uh, fourteen. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So still six, thirteen, fourteen, okay. something, thirteen, maybe. Anyhow. Um, so I decided I'm going to build a shortwave radio, and uh, I was sort of a nerdy kid, and so I'm going to build a shortwave radio, and I'm going to tune in to Sputnik, and yeah. I did. You know, I could <laughs> hear it beeping, beeping. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is like straight yeah. out of Stranger Things Season 3, oh, and you God. watched it, they're like building their own radios. I love that this is you. Yeah, I built my radio. radio. And then I decided, you know, wow, it'd be fun to shoot up my own rockets, you know. And yeah. uh, because NASA wasn't doing very good with those rockets, <laughs> theirs were blowing up on the on the launch pad. Oh, the first gosh. the first Vanguard rockets mm-hmm. were exploded there on the on, yeah. and they we were going to orbit this little grapefruit size satellite uh, <laughs> on our rockets, and of course the Sputnik was bigger. I think it was about twenty two inches in, yeah. in yeah. diameter or something like that. Anyhow, I started. Making up my own rocket fuel, oh. and and uh, using tin cans as as my 
fuselage and wow. making a, um, my nozzle out of modeling clay and uh, uh, went to the drugstore and the druggist uh, would order chemicals for me, not knowing exactly what I was doing. Whoa. And then I <laughs> went. to raise some suspicions these days. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then I went to the <laughs> hardware store and I bought dynamite fuse. And uh, <laughs> so I was setting off these rockets uh, with dynamite fuse and with uh, my, all my formulation of rocket fuel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most of my rockets exploded on the launch pad, just like NASA's, <laughs> and, um, uh, and made a big boom. And I'm sure the... A neighbor uh, said sure. that for Nas kid's gonna kill himself. I was just gonna ask what gonna... your parents were thinking. Yeah, right? well, they <laughs> they actually, my dad drove me to the hardware store oh. to buy this. <laughs> so I mean, they were sort of encouraging me that's, to that's to pursue good. my yeah. my bliss, I guess. But anyhow, I, I finally had a few successful launches, and okay. and I decided, well, that's this is sort of boring. Uh, what would be fun is to build the electronics that go into the rocket. Yeah, you know, so you can. You know, find out what's going on up there as it right. shoots off, and mm-hmm. so I started doing that and um, built some uh, telemetry systems, and uh, actually entered into a science fair. You know, they have the yeah. science fair thing, and and uh, I won the state science fair. This is in nice. the I went from the district to the the local to district to the state science fair, and mm-hmm. actually won an award there. And the award I won at the time, I was a junior in high school was the Navy Science Cruiser Award, which meant that I spent a week with the Navy on an aircraft carrier. <laughs> Here I was, you know, 15 <laughs> years old, and uh, along with other kids had won this. And, yeah. and the Navy was trying to recruit us, I think. That was yeah, the idea. Right. And so we, But this is so fun because they had some senators on board that, that carrier, and wow. uh, we were in the Atlantic, and they were flying jets off of it. And, and uh, the, um, you know, it was, they had a, they had uh, were dragging a sled behind it, and they would bomb the sled and things like that, and they shooting um, air to air missiles, and I mean it was really, <laughs> I, I mean, mean it was amazing stuff. This was real kid. stuff, yeah, yeah. As a kid, gosh, I was. <laughs> and they put took us into submarines and things like oh, that, wow. so we're out out there in the, yeah. in the wow. sea doing this. So uh, <laughs> as a result of that, uh, that was pretty cool. I, I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. I came back and I wrote a little report of it mm-hmm. and and uh it sort of went viral as as, as much as you can go viral at that time <laughs> and uh yeah. and so the North Carolina Public Television mm-hmm. station um invited me to give a sort of a my experience talk about my experience and yeah. shooting off rockets and going on this cruise reward mm-hmm. it just so happened that they organized that at a particular day for me and I didn't know this at the time and uh they said we have a surprise for you so after I did this little interview on television, yeah, um, they took me over to the Moorhead Planetarium at the University of North Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, where the Mercury astronauts were practicing celestial navigation, oh. shooting the stars inside this planetarium because in case their computers went out, yeah, they had to shoot the stars, you know, to find out where they are, yeah. And so um, I got to meet. And spend one hour, just me, with three of the original Mercury astronauts, Alan Shepard, John Glenn, and Gus Grissom. Oh, wow. And, of course, Alan Shepard was the first one. Yeah. To go up. Mm-hmm. This was before he went up. Yeah. Because I asked him who was going to get, who's going to go first. You know, they were saying, <laughs> all of them were saying, well, I'm, yeah, they didn't like, know at that time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I decided at that time, 
I want to be one of those guys. <laughs> I want to go. Yeah. And so that was my direction. I was in laser mode. I wanted to uh, super focused. Yeah. I wanted to go, the, and I thought the way to do it is to go, you have to become a military pilot first, generally, even yeah. though Neil Armstrong wasn't. But uh, I wanted to, the idea was to go to the Air Force Academy, um, go to flight training, yep. fly the jets, um, and then become a test pilot, mm -hmm. and then uh, apply for the astronaut corps because I wanted to go into space. So I got a congressional appointment to go to the Air Force Academy. Mm -hmm. Conditional upon my passing the physical. And so when it came time for me to read the eye chart, mm -hmm. I couldn't read oh, no. the line I needed to read oh. to get into the Air Force Academy. Shoot. And I was shattered. Yeah. That's... And my, my parents made a petition uh, to um, uh, give it retested. Yeah. And they, they granted it. And in between, my mother filled me with carrots. I was eating so many carrots. <laughs> she, that was the idea that carrots would help my vision. Your and, mom. Yeah. And I was, you know, doing all these eye tests and things like that. Oh, and, my gosh. And so I went back to get my eyes tested, and I still couldn't see the line. So I was completely shattered. I didn't have any plan B. You know, that was, that was yeah. the way I want to go. So why can't it, – it, it, it has to be that your eyes function that well without glasses, without contacts, without any anything. Augmentation. And is that still the case? No. No, they I changed see. the They rules. can do LASIK now yeah. very easily. They can do LASIK. As, well, they don't yeah. do that. No, they, they, they've, they just, they've changed, changed it. They've changed the yeah. rules. Okay. The problem is, you know, after, uh, you know, after guys finish um, four years of college – you can't see anyway. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> pretty much it's in your face. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the problem is that that really with all the screen time we use, we really does affect our everyone's vision. eyes. Yeah. Are, yeah. yeah. Anyways. Anyhow, yeah. So what happened by a miracle? That's another story. I ended up as uh, like uh, getting a. Um, I hadn't. I had applied. I hadn't really applied to any other schools. Mm. Um, I'd gotten uh, sort of a. Accepted to some schools, you know, just because of my SAT scores. But uh, yeah, I wasn't interested in any of them. I was pretty well, you know, defeated <laughs> at that point. And then by a miracle, I got accepted to Duke University. Okay, which is a really good school. I mean, it's like yeah. the Princeton of the South, of and, course, yeah. yep. and it's uh, you know in the top ten schools in the country and things like that. And um, and I went there in uh, in the electrical engineering and uh, and also took Air Force ROTC because I had a low draft number. I was going to go to the – this is the Vietnam War period. I was going to go regardless. Mm. Better to go in the Air Force than in infantry. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so that's uh, – that was the plan. And uh, so I, I graduated uh, from Duke and then mm -hmm. got my commission as a second lieutenant in the Air Force. And I ended up flying into fighters anyway oh. as a flight test engineer. Okay. And uh, this is all leading to something, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I'm like wondering, how, how did you get into these crazy yeah. uh, like HMD projects? Yeah. Well, <laughs> what happened was that at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, I, I started working on um, design of crew stations, of cockpits. Crew? Oh, oh, gotcha. And uh, 
So I, uh, after I did uh, some of this um, fl- uh, flight test activity, mm-hmm. and I flew into fighters. I was in Phantoms and uh, boring holes through the sky and and uh, <laughs> going, you know, past the sound barrier and yeah. after uh, and afterburner and you climbing straight up and all that stuff. Upside down. And That's you, right. And there's all those. That's right. Well, it's like when I watched them on Seafair. Mm-hmm. I learned all this stuff. I'm going to mess this up. You know all the terminology, but it's like because you have to do <laughs> special stuff with your ears because yes. of the change, yes. right? Yes. Really. Oh yeah, I didn't realize you had to. Oh yeah, and you have to have to go through altitude training and yeah. uh, explosive decompression and ejection seat training. Well, all because those a lot kind of, of people pass out. I mean, yeah. and, the, and they're the like pra- they do it so. practice. They do it intentionally, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and uh, you have to learn uh, when you're pulling G's. Of course, you're wearing a G suit. The right. G suit is sort of this this uh, sort of a separate pair of pants that uh, squeezes you. You know, when oh. you're pulling G's. Um, it squeezes your legs to keep the hydrostatic column of blood up into your brain. Yeah, so you don't lose too much in, well, from your... Right. what usually happens is that uh, you have what is called... Uh, uh, when when you're pulling G's, and of uh-huh. course there's a gravity vector that's pulling down on the blood then yep. in your head... Um, and you don't have enough blood pressure to keep it going up. Yeah, is you what's affected first is really your vision, and you begin to see a gray out, where things uh, in the periphery start getting gray, mm-hmm. and then it sort of begins to converge to where you get looking through a hole, mm-hmm. and then you sort of begin to see red. It's sort of a red out. Oh wow! And then you have a complete blackout. Now you are still conscious. But you don't see anything. Oh, so your vision is just gone. You're yeah, still, vision is gone. And then, of course, so you're blackout. You didn't need your vision anyway. Oh, that's what, <laughs> <laughs> so then what to see. Yeah. <laughs> so then what happens is you're out. And then, you know, uh, you're, you're out, out cold. Oh, okay. So like you, unconscious. you have that red out and then a blackout, yeah. basically. And then you actually go out cold. Yeah. Conscious. Yeah. And I know we're so off topic, but yeah. what what is the, how do you practice that? Well, what you have to do is you have to be in shape, physically in shape. Mm. And then along with the G-suit um, blowing, you know, inflating and the squeezing your blood and squeezing yeah. your, your legs, you have to practice what this, um, I think is what the, they call it, the M1 maneuver. The M1 maneuver is where you're hunched over and you're straining like you're trying to pass a watermelon. You know, <laughs> you're, just, you're just sitting there and grunting. <laughs> you know, and that that sort of keeps oh, trying to keep the stuff up, you know, in the room. <laughs> Do you yeah. have is it is it essential to make sure that you've used the bathroom before you get into the plane to, to do any of those kinds of maneuvers? Well, there's another story I tell you. But that's another story. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Oh, that's awesome. Great question, Jay. Okay. So <laughs> really a second. So um so you were saying so you were working so you were actually flying, but then you somehow ended up in the cockpit design right. work as because well. Because the cockpit, I found that was, again, like the telemetry. I found out yeah. that was more fun uh, doing that than, mm. than shooting off the rockets. Yeah. And for the time that you were in the air, the few hours you were in the air, you had to spend mm. a lot of time on the ground sitting on your hands. Yeah. And, uh, Hurry up and wait. Right? Yeah. <laughs> waiting for things to get ready and, you know, yep. airplane to be serviced and things like that. and. And there are other missions being flown on these aircraft, yeah. so you had to wait your turn and things like that. Yeah. So I decided, wow, that, there's got to be more fun than this. So, <laughs> uh, so I started working on um, on designing fighter cockpits. Okay. 
And uh, it was clear that we just were in a difficult situation. A typical yeah. fighter cockpit at the time, we had, uh, you know, you had uh, 300 switches, 75 displays, yep. 11 switches on the control stick, mm-hmm. nine switches on the throttle. You were connected to 52 computers. Uh, oh you're flying God. at twice the speed of sound, yeah. pulling G's to the boundaries of consciousness and being shot at at the same time. Yeah. And it's sort of handle a, all that. Yeah. How do you <laughs> do that? You know, one, one person, you know, was trying to handle all this. And, yeah. and so the way that uh, it was just like dumping a jigsaw puzzle into the pilot's lap mm. where all this is going on and you got to put together the puzzle, yeah. figure out what's happening. While you're blacked out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you're not blacked out at that yeah. time. But. And trying to pass a watermelon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it is a, it's a, a very difficult job. And of course, if something goes wrong, mm-hmm. Uh, then you have to leave the office really fast with the ejection. Oh, oh, oh. And, yeah. <laughs> I was like, you have to leave the office. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> the office, your office like, is no, a crew station. Or, yeah. yeah, no, okay. Yeah, okay. Oh, I yeah. did not catch on to that for yeah. a good hot minute yeah. there. Wow. So, um, you know, the, the, in the case of, uh, you know, an F-16, a modern fighter aircraft, you have all a computer stability augmentation computer, mm-hmm. you know, and, you have air data and, and uh, electronic warfare and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, all these different c- computers. and All these subsystems. Helping yeah, to, and if you have a power failure in the main bus of this aircraft, it just isn't going to be a good day. Because yeah. <laughs> the airplane tends to swap ends and things like that, you know, yeah. and you have to leave the office. <laughs> yeah. Or you get shot at and you get the problem there. Yeah. So, so that was the pro- these were the problem spaces I was working in. And yeah. not only just not for fighter aircraft, but also for other aircraft. And mm-hmm. I was even doing things for tanks and for submarines wow. and even for the space shuttle in the end. Oh, wow. Uh, working on these displays. And it was clear to me that we're never going to get there using the same paradigm. We're yeah. just cramming more instruments in the car. More and more buttons. And uh, so when we went to electronic displays, of course, you can have, they can be reconfigurable. Mm-hmm. But that even made the problem worse because now you had, you know, thousand symbols, different symbols you could put on an yeah. uh, electronic display. And so it, the way it was organized was not very good mm-hmm. in, the, in terms of getting bandwidth to and from the brain. So uh, I started working on this notion of well, why are we having to use up physical space mm-hmm. for these instruments. Why don't we project them yeah. onto the pilot like we do with a head-up display? Let's just create a, a display that's actually mounted to the head, yeah. which projects this information. You can make it really wide field of view, mm-hmm. and you, it, it'd follow you wherever you looked. You yeah. didn't have to worry about looking at a particular instrument in a cockpit. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, you could track head position, know exactly where your head is aimed, and stabilize information in space, depending upon where you want it to be in space. As you move your head around, you'll see that moving around on the display so it appears to be at the same place in space. Mm-hmm. So that really was the beginning of virtual reality. Right. Uh, and this was, I started working on this in 1966 and all wow. these things. And we were building things and we're testing them. Yeah. And I was testing some of them, actually. And um, uh, in the process... Over these years, these 23 years, I worked for the Air Force. Yeah. Uh, first five years as a military officer, and then after that <clears> as a military scientist. Um, we built the foundation mm-hmm. for what we call virtual reality. Yeah. And there toward the end, I built the Darth Vader helmet, the super cockpit. The super cockpit is the cockpit that you wear, and you have this huge panoramic field of view. 
<laughs> and um, and we had speech input. We had mm-hmm. uh, eye tracking. We had all of these speech other input. Things. So we were making speech. So you look at something and you give you say something. You yeah. know, and uh, so these were all, and, and there was R two D two. We had, we, were, we were developing uh, <laughs> Your the uh, yes, right, uh, AI copilot in it. And anyhow, so those over those years, I was working on it. And um, what were you calling it at this time? Flight simulation, or, or no, it's not we, even yeah, simulation. So yeah, yeah. I mean, what? well, it, I mean, it ended up being in the end. It was uh, we were doing simulations, but. But we were also. This is for operational aircraft. This is for yeah, the pilot. Real time. Right, that's what I mean. Yeah. 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 So, what, how did you refer to it? Because it, I'm assuming it wasn't called VR at that time. Well, we called them. Uh, we called them visually coupled systems. Visually coupled systems are what we okay. called them at the time, and then the super cockpit. Yeah. Okay. That was the name of the program I started. Yeah. Uh, it's called a super cockpit. Visually coupled, being like you have this head mounted system that is then also coupled to the right. aircraft system right. that you are in. And you name missiles with where you look with your head and, and track yeah. with yeah. your head and things like that. So mm-hmm. it became a way to get much higher bandwidth to and from the brain, mm-hmm. from the pilot to the to the all those systems in the aircraft. Yeah. And it really did was transformative. Furthermore, it was natural. Yeah. I mean it was you yeah. didn't have to learn a lot of things. It was sort of a natural way to do the interaction. Yeah. Which uh, again increases the bandwidth to and mm-hmm. from the brain. Oh, it decreases the friction too. It just enables you to more fluidly handle all of the different tasks. Well, yeah, it's a skill-based behavior. You have yeah. these things that uh, where you didn't have to train a lot mm-hmm. to okay. do these things. Yeah. Around so, what year ish did this start actually getting put into practice, and you're starting to train people on that? Or like the super cockpit? Yeah. Kind of thing. Well, bits and pieces came along with where they adopted the head-mounted. Siding system that were in in army helicopters and in mm-hmm. uh, uh, navy uh, aircraft, you know, navy uh, for aiming air to air combat the missiles and okay. um, and then later, of course, if you go look at the F thirty five now, mm-hmm. uh, the Joint Strike Fighter, the helmet for the Joint Strike Fighter, that was basically what I was I was developing, you know, <laughs> twenty thirty years ago. That yeah. is crazy. So we were we were doing things that were. Um, Pretty far out, right? Yeah, uh, and uh, are finally being used in uh, uh, in these uh, new aircraft. Yeah, but usually that's what it is. I mean, it usually takes about twenty years to get some of these concepts really adopted into the uh, into right. the systems. Mm-hmm. W- was that information public at the time, or was it all private behind within? closed doors? Yeah, government. Okay, I have another story to tell you. Okay. <laughs> I okay. love it. Uh, the so the information was. Um, uh, classified. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of the work was classified and, mm-hmm. and meaning that it was secret. And, uh, um, but, uh, I, I was working on this, um, super cockpit mm-hmm. program and, um, I got a call from a general officer from the Pentagon. He said, we would like for you to hold a press release. Um, about the work you're doing at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Yeah. I said, really? Uh, and he said, yeah, we need some positive publicity. He said, it's just come out in the news that the Navy's spending um, 
$800 for toilet seats and the army is spending $500 for hammers. And, and, uh, there's this public outcry about the military industrial complex and, wasting money. Yeah. And that we need, and, and usually this is when we reveal to the public that we're working on something that's advanced, a, a black, <laughs> <Divert> attention. <laughs> that's a, Very a black aircraft yeah. or something yeah. like that, a uh, black yeah. ship. And, um, so we are uh, responsibly using mm-hmm. uh, the taxpayers' money, yeah. Which is is pretty much the case. I mean, it, the uh, the problem with the five hundred dollar hammers and and toilet seats was really not really the military. It was because of the federal regulations, yeah, or certification yeah. and all this kind of stuff. That yeah, was it's the same on top of things. Same problem in the military today. I yeah, feel like. <laughs> it's just yeah, I feel like it's inherent to, to government. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you have a Marine Corps experience. Yes, specifically. So you know about that. <laughs> so the uh, so what happened was I said, okay, um, um, but this is all classified. And he said, declassified. And so well, uh, well, okay. at, least, at least some of the stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I said, okay. So I wrote up this press, con- this press release and started with a press conference. And the first people to show up, was mm-hmm. CBS Evening News. Dan Rather's crowd, uh, David Martin, the Pentagon correspondent, shows up at my lab at, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base with a film crew. All right. No. <laughs> and they start taping my, my simulator of the super cockpit. Oh. And I have, you know, tape over a lot of buttons and instruments. <laughs> and the, and the, uh, But anyhow, the um, I end up on the CBS Evening News. Oh, wow. <laughs> and... Uh, I'm explaining how this super cockpit works and things like that. Mm. After that, it was like Pandora's box. Yeah, I bet. curiosity, then, I'm sure, was peaked. then. Then ABC <laughs> had to come, and NBC, oh. and then uh, uh, CNN, BBC, uh, CBC, <laughs> Australian Television, oh New Zealand gosh. Television, Science Editor of the New York Times came down and spent a day with me talking about the future of this technology. Yeah. We were on the front cover of U.S. News and World Report. Popular Mechanics wanted me to write an article for them, oh which I gosh. did, and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> so after that, I was out of R&D. I was in the show business. Uh-oh. Right. <laughs> and that was pretty much anybody flew over Dayton, Ohio, landed and uh, wanted to come to my lab. How did you feel about that? Well, it was it was sort of fun. I mean, yeah. in a way. <laughs> but um, Good recognition, at least, <laughs> of all this secret work that you were doing for years. Yeah. Well, it was a big splash at that time yeah. in the news. And then... Um, and just but, for to track, what what year was this around? This was eighty seven. Okay, eighty seven. Mm-hmm. Okay, eighty seven. Okay, and so uh, the uh, but what happened as a result of this is that I started getting phone calls. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, the switchboard at Wright Patterson, I'm sure, was uh, they said, <laughs> "I want to talk to that guy that does that weird helmet stuff," you know, yeah. and they'd vector them to me. And but I I got a call from this mother and says. Um, I just watched this program on television about this this virtual mm-hmm. interface stuff that you're doing. And my child has cerebral palsy. Is there anything you can do with that technology to help my child? Yeah. And then a, a surgeon called me and said, I saw this program on television. I'm this, I'm a thoracic surgeon. I'm inside this patient up to my yeah. elbows. I'm trying to do a graft or aorta. Mm-hmm. And my map, which tells me where I am, is, is a CT scan on the light box on the wall. Isn't there any way that you can take that information and project it inside the patient? 
Then another surgeon called me and said, I'm a thoracic surgeon. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm trying to perfect this in minimally invasive surgical procedure. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. I want to be in the inside looking out of the patient. Is there any ways you can put my eyes in the inside mm-hmm. of this patient? Yeah. Uh, anesthesiologists were calling and saying, we need a super cockpit for anesthesiology to integrate all this information. Yeah. Right. Because it's a mess right now. Mm-hmm. Um, firefighting company. Called oh, and said, yeah. we have a real problem with firefighters. They're going into these buildings, these burning buildings. They don't know where the fire is. Mm-hmm. They're filled with smoke. Yep. Mm-hmm. They don't know if there are any people in the building. Yeah. They don't know where the other firemen are in the building. Yep. And the fire chief, who's directing all of this, is on the outside of the building with a radio, and he doesn't know anything. <laughs> right. Now, is there any way yeah. that you can give us a navigation system as we go into these buildings for these firefighters yeah. and the smoke to detect fires, detect other people, things mm-hmm. like that? So, anyhow, I was getting three or four phone calls a week mm-hmm. like this, just off the wall. And my answer to those people was, well, yeah, you could do that. Matter of fact, that'd be easy. These are all engineering problems. Well, yeah, and it's easy compared to what I'm trying to do. And so um, that's when I realized that we're onto something really big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And something transformative. So um, I started digging a little deeper into this mm-hmm. and decided, you know, what we need is a longer term strategy of what we want to do with this technology, the broader should, application. Right yeah. And so I convinced the Air Force to to give me a sabbatical. Oh. A year off just to come up with an investment strategy for what we should do with this technology in the military. Okay. And I went everywhere. <laughs> I had a travel budget. I had a place uh, office off campus. Wow. Uh, off the base and and um so I went to toy companies the hospitals, the kindergartens, the aerospace companies, mm-hmm. to com, you know computer companies, just about every place you can think of, yeah. formulating a plan. And I came back to the Air Force and said, you know, what we have to do is get it out of the military. <laughs> we have to they t- I'm sure that? they were happy to hear that. <laughs> well, and that we would leverage way more investment. Yeah in the technology by getting it out. Yeah, we can open it up to more industries mm-hmm. and get yes. way more. Uh, and then learn from each stuff. other and take it yes. back into yeah. the yes. And I said, I have put together a plan to establish a laboratory at a university in the United States that would do this. Oh. And I want to do it. And so I want to leave the military and I want to go to do it. So I started shopping it out. Yeah. I went to MIT and Caltech, Stanford, Carnegie Mellon, University of Texas, University of North Carolina, uh, University of Utah, and University of Washington. And the University of Washington invited me to come out, Mm -hmm. and um, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse Mm -hmm. to move to Seattle. And with the idea of establishing a laboratory that would not only do research in this whole field of VR, would also commercialize it, would build bridges to industry. And so I started, I moved from Dayton, Ohio to mm-hmm. Seattle in 1989. I started my laboratory. It grew from one person, me, and to <laughs> 120. Wow. And we raised, uh, um, well, now I don't know what it is, but it's, it's um, a lot of money, yeah. 30 million plus, and spun off 27 companies. Two of them are trading on NASDAQ at a market cap of $12 billion. What are uh, 100, um, you know, Hundreds of students, yeah, hundreds of patents, mm-hmm. and uh, because um, um, the whole 
idea was that my report card was going to be based upon, you know, not just what professors get um, graded on in terms yeah. of papers and students, but but just how many patents did you generate? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How many new ideas? And how many yeah. people are employed in the state of Washington as a result of what you've done? Yeah, and things like that. Wow. wow. And so this is this lab still exists today? Is this the same one or was is that it the HIT lab? The HIT lab. The yeah. Human Interface Technology Lab. Yeah. Uh, it is um it, it's been federated. I mean there are elements of it that still exist. Um but there is another lab I spun off in New Zealand, the HIT oh. Lab New Zealand. Okay. Human Interface Technology Lab in New Zealand, which is thriving, and then one in Australia in Tasmania. Wow. Okay. Now let's fast forward a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I want to get back to the overview effect. This is a long-winded story oh, to get us no. to the overview effect. The over- You've forgotten Wait. about that, oh, haven't you? Yeah. So I had a I had a thought about that, and I've never been to space um, in particular. But <laughs> oh, <laughs> <I> would, oh yeah, <laughs> don't you feel behind? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> never been to the moon yet. But um, that the, the way that you described the overview effect earlier, when they are looking out the window of the uh, the spaceship or their pod, and they can see the moon panning through their view, or the little blue dot of the Earth or the sun in the distance, um, that sort of feeling of perspective and being far away, and and just kind of realizing that that is like everything that we have ever been. Um, I feel like there's almost a small inkling of that sort of sensation that happens when you, it's the same kind of wonder and awe that you get when you stand on the top of a really large mountain Um, because you're suddenly higher above the landscape and you have this perspective and everything looks small and far away. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's something to that. Um, uh, When I think about Edgar Mitchell, what happens when you're, Let's say, let's say, for example, mm-hmm. that we're sort of living in three dimensions, aren't we? I mean, we have, uh, we say maybe time is a fourth dimension say, or something like that, time, but, but three spatial dimensions. Yeah. And probably when you think about what's going on with physics, that um, there are probably way more dimensions than three dimensions. Yeah, right. there's way more layers. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, I mean, even physicists, the string theory physicists have to have 11 dimensions to make it work, mm-hmm. the math work out. Yeah. So um, if you are, have you heard of, the, read the book Flatlands? No. Book Flatlands. No. It's about living in a two-dimensional world. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And what it would be like living in a two-dimensional world, and when a two-dimensional world encounters a three-dimensional object or thing that? or being, what, yeah, you know, what does that look like? What, so, so, was there you, two dimensions and time, or is it no, just okay. just two dimensions, just spatial dimensions. dimensions? Interesting. Um, so that that's called Flatland. Okay, it's a really great book. But anyhow, what if you are a four-dimensional being, mm-hmm. and um, Whereas on Earth, you were constrained to three dimensions. Yeah. Because you needed to learn something that you can only learn in three dimensions. Mm-hmm. But there are four dimensional phenomena taking place all the time. Yeah. But you're seeing it through the eyes of three dimensions. <laughs> that limited and, filter. Uh, this begins to explain a lot of phenomenon that we see, a lot of connectivity and yeah. the, uh, the whole entanglement. 
thing. Yeah, and so just forth. hidden layers of influence that we don't have good explanation for, at least right. in the three-dimensional world. But if you are a four-dimensional being, mm. you're everywhere in three dimensions at the same time. Yeah, or at least your your edges don't really work the same way. <laughs> well, you comprehend it. Yeah. You see it all. Just like as three-dimensional beings, I when see. we look at a two-dimensional plane, we see it all mm. at once. So it's like what you're saying is that that view uh, that he had was, it's like entering that fourth dimension yes. for a, a, a I believe he was brushing against that. And that's the epiphany, that we have these brushing experiences. Uh, uh, when we're on the top of a mountain, the overview effect of yeah. where we see this whole, mm-hmm. we don't see the parts anymore. We see the whole. Yeah. And, uh, and that gives us this higher, um, elevated sort of elevated sensation. way. It's like the yeah. closest that we ever get yeah. to being able to have a greater perspective or awareness mm-hmm. than just our usual three dimensional bubble. Right. right. So when you, um, in my case, mm-hmm. I've been working in this field for a number of years, both in the military side and at the university. Yeah, some of my students were had taken jobs at NASA, mm-hmm. and uh, they gave me a call and said, um, "Would you like to come down and see the Hubble Space Telescope repair system?" Oh, which was using my technology, the simulator, where the astronauts were being trained. Uh-huh to repair the Hubble Space Telescope, which happened a few years ago. Yeah. And so they were using virtual reality and some of my stuff to do that. (laughs) That's really cool. Your life is coming, you know, connecting back. You're getting to see where this is going. (laughs) Yeah, like enabling the exploration of space, deep space. Yeah. So what happened was um, I said, sure, I'd like (laughs) to come. And so I... um, I went down to NASA Houston and uh, went into their laboratory and to their simulator, mm-hmm. which was, um, you know, like a mock-up of a car- cargo bay mm-hmm. of the space shuttle. Okay. And they, I suited up in the space suit with the helmet on, the space helmet and all this kind of thing, only everything's projected virtually. Yeah, yeah. So you see the shuttle bay virtually. Um. You see the uh, Earth and you see the, the <laughs> Hubble Space Telescope out there. Uh-huh. And I get on the robot arm and I move through the uh, the the compartment of the, the cargo bay of the space shuttle. And uh, I'm actually looking up at the Earth um, because the shuttle's flying yeah, upside yeah. down here. Just from that perspective. And uh, so I'm looking at the Earth. <laughs> and uh, I go over and I do the repairs mm-hmm. like the astronauts did. I pull the trays out and the chains, the electronics and the optics and things like that. Yeah. And then I'm all sort of on my, after I've done the repairs, I'm on my way back. Uh-huh. And I'm looking up at the earth. And I had my own overview oh, effect. that's awesome. <laughs> I said, wow. I am an astronaut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For this moment, you've got it. <laughs> I did become an astronaut. Yeah. But I came an astronaut in virtual space Mm -hmm. that is being used for all of these other applications. Yeah. Medicine and education and that warms my heart so much. Yeah, like like I'm getting chills. (laughs) So um, that's why I have a connection with this 
Institute of Noetic Sciences. And I began to understand that. And what we'd like to do, and this is one of the applications of the technology Mm -hmm. that I believe is there. A lot of people say, well, VR really isolates people. You know, you have to go in this headset and you're isolated. Mm -hmm. Well, yes and no. I believe that Mm -hmm. what it can do is bring us closer together Mm -hmm. and especially closer to the earth, to appreciating Mother Earth or Lover Earth. And because we can see things that we wouldn't be able to see otherwise. Yeah, we didn't have a very natural way to interact with right. all these and things. It, and we can begin to comprehend these things. And if everyone could have the same experience that Edgar Mitchell had, yeah, then it would change us. Yeah, right. We would. Or at childhood's end, we need to have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I believe that back to this morphic resonance, this is something that is destiny that we have to have as a tool. Mm-hmm. To help us over this cusp yeah. of childhood's end, where we now realize that we are connected and that we have a responsibility. We're not isolated, and that we have to begin using this knowledge and appreciation and affection and love mm-hmm. for all we are, which is more than just what is our body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what is our mind? What is our brain? It's everything. Mm -hmm. And that for us to progress, we need to embrace all of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is just a tool. VR is just a tool. Yeah. And and that's sort of the reason I I started the Virtual World Society. Yeah. The Virtual World Society is this nonprofit that's intended to help people use the technology to help. To be a humanitarian applications um, where we can lift mankind and uh, womankind. And um, we can become more than what we are now because Mm. we are, we're, we're killing our mother. Yeah. And at uh, least we're isolating ourselves from our essential, our our needed system, our support system of the earth. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, if, uh, our mother is, has been giving us all this time, mm. and now uh, we have to be uh, understanding that she is aging, and she is like an aging parent, and we mentioned before, mm. and that we now need to support. And, and, and um, so how's, how do you do that? And you do that with transforming us yeah. and transforming us so that we see we do have an overview. We do see what's happening. Mm-hmm. And the, the the spatial education tool that we have with VR, with used properly, mm-hmm. uh, can help us with that. But just like splitting the atom, VR is unleashing enormous power in terms of writing on the brain with permanent ink. Yeah. Because when you're in <laughs> virtual space, you're writing on the brain with permanent ink because you'll never forget it. Because mm-hmm. it's experiential. You yeah. are. And, and yeah. it's like going to Disneyland. You never forget going to Disneyland. Yeah. I don't care how many <laughs> brochures you look at Disneyland or how many movies you see at Disneyland. It's not yeah. the same as going there. <laughs> and that's what VR does. Yeah. You go there, and it puts a place inside of you mm. because it puts you in a place. Yeah. And that's the power of this technology. So you can use that power. Mm for killing people, practicing killing people, blowing their brains out, or for loving people. 
yeah. for helping, educating, uh, looking at this whole area. We know, for example, with pain, mm-hmm. we've pioneered, the HIT Lab has pioneered the work in a pain, a non-opiate uh, method of dealing with pain, not only acute pain, but chronic pain, mm-hmm. for PTSD, for stress reduction, for um, for all of these things that can help people grow and progress and health and well-being, all those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah. But the default of industry, the default of industry mm. is to make things that people will buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thinking that, thinking that people like to shoot other people, yeah. that that is the way to do things. But with all of our work we've done with children mm-hmm. over many, many years, yeah. We found that that's not what kids want to do. It's not the instinct. <laughs> the instinct is create. Yeah. The instinct is to create. Look at Minecraft, what happened yeah. to Minecraft. Yeah. I mean, in the old days when my, my kids uh, were watching television in Sesame Street, and um, you're sort of a passive viewer, and, and then, of course, computer games came along, mm-hmm. and you became an active participant, participant yeah. um, and you didn't watch television anymore. You know, when the kids started playing computer, they didn't watch television. Mm -hmm. Then we started playing Minecraft. You know, that became the dominant thing. Mm -hmm. And so this is what we've seen over and over again. And when you turn the kids loose, in which we've done Mm -hmm. at the middle school project we're currently doing, for example, you find that there's no violence in those worlds they build. Yeah, they're whimsical. They're fun. <laughs> yeah, and they—that uh, is not a natural instinct. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to to see these kids around a circle, mm-hmm. deciding what kind of world they got. Here, they have a clean slate. They mm-hmm. can build any world they want to mm-hmm. go into, experience, interact with, and um, and you hear them discussing it. And the guys <laughs> say, "Well, let's put, let's shoot this, or let's shoot that," and the girls will say, "Really? <laughs> <laughs> Why would you want to do that?" You have a chance to build a new world. Yeah. And the guys a, sort of stop and think and say, yeah. yeah, why would we ever want to do that? Yeah. yeah it's and like so, we're, we're breaking that sort of societal yes, crap yes, pattern that we've that's been that, in. That crap pattern yeah. is what it is. <laughs> it, and, and, uh, and that's the industry thinks mm-hmm. that's what sells the stuff. Yeah. It tends to be a little bit too safe still. Well, and, and what I'm trying to do with the Virtual World Society is show the industry there is a huge market yeah. that is not that. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm curious about the Virtual World Society. You mentioned uh, a little bit about it, that it's a nonprofit, what it focuses on. But I don't have a great sense of, of what are the different compartments of, of the organization. So with the Virtual World Society... My colleagues and I, the members of the society, of which are about 1,300 members now, I think. Really? Really feel the same way that this technology is different from Mm -hmm. anything we've had before. This medium is different Mm -hmm. because it it is able to be a transportation system for your senses. It does put you in a place. Yeah. And the question is, what do you do in that place? And how does it make you better? And how does it lift you and enlighten you and incite you and mm-hmm. engage you? All those kinds of things. And so um, there are several avenues that we see uh, the society manifesting its mission. 
One of the avenues has to do with uh, people who are isolated, mm-hmm. people who can't be connected to others. And this would include uh, children that are in hospitals, mm-hmm. um, uh, people who have disabilities, yeah. uh, aged people who are lonely and who are isolated from their families. That we can not only give them a place to go, mm-hmm. rather than just the four walls therein, yeah. otherwise, but also a place where they can interact with their loved ones mm-hmm. and make friends and things like that. And this also applies to refugees, of which there are many thousands. Yes. <laughs> and they are people without a country. Mm-hmm. And um, they have lost their their prospects of education. Mm-hmm. Many of them are professionals who don't get an opportunity to uh, work in their profession. Use their skills. Yeah. And it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem because of the tyranny that exists in the, in the world. Yeah. And more and more because of displacement due to climate change. Yeah. That's that going is. to be affecting all of that. So that problem so, is not going to get any smaller. No, <laughs> no it's not. And, and so in a way, VR... Uh, especially when we get it down to where it's not oppressively expensive Mm -hmm. and becomes a commodity, then um, what we can do with the content, the ability to connect, things like that, really can be transformative for those people. So that's one whole area of of our mission. Yeah. Another area of our mission has to do with education and especially uh, lifelong learning education. We start with the, the children, and the children, of course, uh, in schools. We schools are really sort of broken. <laughs> I mean, they, uh, I mean, when you think about it, um, here you go into a classroom, uh, and you've heard this many times before, I'm sure, mm-hmm. which is really most times the way we taught a hundred years ago. Yeah, um, and um, and you have to teach to the common denominator. Yeah. <laughs> And you teach out of books and abstractions and things like that. Mm-hmm. But VR offers another tool for teachers. Mm-hmm. And it's all going to be about the teachers anyway. You know, yeah. teachers are, are important in this. Whole they're the formula. guide in that whole The guide. guide. Yeah. But an opportunity for field trips. I remember from my elementary experiences and middle school experiences, the things I really remember were my field trips. Yeah. And, um, uh, but the ability to go on a field trip every day to go um, inside of an atom, go mm-hmm. inside of the body. It's like the magic school bus. Yeah. Magic school bus, exactly. <laughs> is, is, um, I mean, you don't frizzle. forget that. And what a wonderful way to teach. And especially if you're able to teach with problem solving, with projects that you do and making virtual worlds and things like mm-hmm. that. So we have been sponsoring a number of projects uh, mm-hmm. having to do with kids in schools. This has come out of 30 years of working on experiments funded by National Science Foundation and others to test it. And we know, uh, completely know, no question, the power of this technology mm-hmm. for education. It's, it's just amazing. It's been demonstrated over and over, over again. Over and over again. Yeah. But the problem is the practicality of getting into the schools. Yep. Yeah. Because here's another technology you're introducing <laughs> in the school. I mean, teachers are having enough problems just to get kids lock, logged on to Chromebooks, you know, in a 50-minute <laughs> in a class. And yeah. how is this going to work in that? And I'm sure and, it's probably also a bit threatening to teachers, right? It is. And, uh, and, it, and then teachers are going to 
they're going to sabotage it if it doesn't work, you know, yeah. and, uh, and that's just the way it is. And it can't be stuffed down their throat. They have yeah. to want it and mm-hmm. realize the power of it. So part of this is the education of teachers as much. There's no problem with the kids. I mean, kids love this they're stuff. They're open to yeah, it. Yeah, they're open to it. <laughs> still- but the teachers have to see the value in it. And mm-hmm. we have to, uh, they have to see the demonstration. We, we have this, the science. Yeah. We have the, the stats. We have all those kind of things that proves that that's good. Mm-hmm. But the teachers themselves have to see that it's there. So that's part of what we're after with these middle school projects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have a current project at the Robert Eagle Staff Middle School mm-hmm. near North Seattle where yeah. kids are actually using it you know, every day. I mean, in the classroom, they, they have a class in, in VR. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, what it's about, how to create using it, and, uh, and actually learning from the, the technology itself. With the teachers... Have you been making progress so far, do you feel? Are you discovering ways in which you are connecting with the teachers and they're having an aha moment? Or do you feel like that's just beginning and it's still in progress? I think it's it's still in progress. I mm-hmm. think it's it's not a done deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to almost do it a one-at-a-time kind of thing. Um, right. Because the school district's... Um, decisions are made at school districts. That's one of the problems, by the way, in the United States. Mm-hmm. You can't really have a top-down approach to this because every school district makes its own decisions. And it's yeah. not like you have a minister of education that says, we're going to do this countrywide like yeah. you can in Bulgaria or China or someplace <laughs> like that. You have to yeah. get teachers to want it but the, or the educators to want it and then also the parents to support yeah. yes. it. Yeah, say the right? parent-teacher yes. Absolutely. And that's really what happened at this Robert Eagle Staff Middle School. We had an enlightened principal who introduced this first to the PTA. Mm-hmm. I okay. told them what they're planning on doing when we did our first year project. We're in our, ending up our second year. Okay. And um, and the parents were gung-ho, and uh, they mm-hmm. wanted to see this. Now, unfortunately, we couldn't accept all the students. We had, uh, we had you know, hundreds of applicants of students who wanted to participate. We could only yeah. take 27 at the time. Uh, but, uh, but now that's – we're now up to 110 or something like that in wow. the classroom. And, and so that's – this is a model. It is a, mm-hmm. a type of what we can see, archetype of what we see could happen – but there is a, an informational campaign where the not only do they need to see what good can happen from it, is they need to experience it themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Once you've been in a virtual world, you're changed. Right. You forever. have to. It is definitely one of those things where it's not easy to create a presentation about it and sell someone on That's it. That's right. No, you got to be there. They got to do it. Be put into it. Yeah. Yeah. Virtual presentation. Uh, you can show all the videos you want to about what swimming is like. Mm. But until you jump in the water yourself, mm-hmm. paddle around, mm. it won't get there. Yeah. Same kind of idea. So, so the school, the school, the institutional institutionalization of VR in mm-hmm. that setting will happen. It's going to take a while. Yeah. But what we're shooting for is a feeding frenzy. Yep. You get mm-hmm. to the point where if you don't have it, you're left behind. Mm-hmm. Sort of like mm-hmm. what happened with computers. Uh, putting and it'll take a while, yeah, to yeah. get there. actually establish that momentum. Yeah, um, but what's the re- the most important part of this is mm-hmm. what's happening in the home because we have way more technology in homes than we're ever going to have in the schools mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, 
when you think about, you know, you have your smart TV, you have your your uh, tablet computers, your desktop computers, your yep. f- smartphones, Everybody all these kind has of things. The phone, basically, at this point. So, so um, the home is really the lifelong learning center. Mm-hmm. And one of the projects of the Virtual Society, in addition to doing the school project, is to do what we call the learning living room. The idea is the living room becomes the classroom of the future. You can already see it happening with Coursera and all these online courses mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. But think what would happen if you put them in VR. And uh, that this is a place for families to go on expeditions, right. to yeah. pilot a starship, yeah. <laughs> go out and look at astrobiology, f- find those planets out there that will support life. Mm-hmm. And in the process, you realize how cool it is where we are right now. Yeah. Or to uh, go to um, uh, um, India or go to uh, Taj Mahal mm-hmm. or go to all these places where you may not be able to go, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but you can go with, as a family. And oh, by the way, you can also invite your grandmother who is on the other side of the country to go right. with you on yeah. this yeah. trip. I always imagined you could learn the alphabet. You know how they always have those like K's for kangaroo. Mm-hmm. Like, just like really go to Australia. Yes. Yeah. That's right. I feel like this is this is an actual kangaroo. This is where you find yeah. kangaroos. Yeah. Things like yeah. that. You like learn so much about the letter. And you hold a baby kangaroo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. A wombat. Mm-hmm. Or a, a koala. <laughs> yeah. So I mean these these are things that really make an impression. I mean yeah. you yeah, never yeah. forget them, and that's the way we learn. That's the way we used to learn. We didn't learn out of abstractions and the books mm-hmm. and things like that, but in the past, we learned from experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the way the kids start learning, you know, a binging, uh, banging spoons on pots and mm-hmm. things like that. And so um, the other thing is, if you believe the New York Times, 50% of the jobs that exist today aren't going to exist in oh, the next gotcha. 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> or job automation, job loss yeah. as a result of automation. And so here you have a person who's in mid-career, and loses their job. Yeah. What are they going to do? Mm-hmm. Well, that's where the learning living room takes over. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, you're not going to go back to college again, or you aren't going to go back to, you know, whatever vocational school. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to learn in your home. Yeah. So just m- another medium for continuing education yes. or, or retraining later on in life. Yes. And it's, and it's training that is, can be rapidly attained. I mean, it's back to bandwidth of the brain. Yeah, because it's almost yeah, kinesthetic learning. Yeah, that's, right. that's right. And it's like immersive you said learning. earlier, right? You but you remember it better. It's the permanent marker on right. your brain. Yeah. That's right. Actually went through it. That's right. So that's another project of the virtual world society is the mm-hmm. learning living room where we are in our first dose of it. We're trying to get a hundred families around the world mm-hmm. to be field laboratories where they would be infused with the technology and and basically test, see what they do with it. We don't know. I mean, the emergent behavior that could could happen from that. Different Mm -hmm. needs, different places. That's right, exactly. And especially uh, families with special needs, ones with uh, family members have uh, um, situations like uh, cognitive impairment and uh, things like that. So there's that side of it. Then there's the whole medical well-being side of things mm-hmm. which has to do with stress and pain and and uh, More those like things therapy application right yeah. yeah now we don't have a specific program with that yet because those there seem to be coming along mm-hmm. uh, vertical markets are 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 there yeah, now yeah, and are being yeah. recognized and 
and uh, we have uh, new companies emerging that are de- yep. developing that. And our idea is to be more catalyst and to be to to spur these things to happen because we yeah. aren't going to do them all ourselves. No, we just want to <laughs> help them to happen. You need to inspire the action. Yeah, in, in others. Well, another another project uh, we're uh, looking forward to doing is mm-hmm. with the Make a Wish Foundation. Hmm. This is um, uh, we're going to have, be having a, a meeting shortly about that. We've been um, doing a dance with Make a Wish, mm-hmm. and uh, we want to be able to help these kids who have terminal diseases to have a wish. Now they they can't necessarily leave their hospital room, and uh, so how can we give them a wish? And they would be part of helping that wish become true. Mm-hmm. So that's um. That is how, again, how we help people that are isolated. There is a, an organization called the International Child Art Foundation. And this is a, an organization that has 100 countries are members of this. And every two years, they have sort of like an Olympiad in the National Mall in Washington, D.C., where they, the children eight to 18 sort of bring their mm-hmm. art that they've created. And usually they have a theme every year where they're bringing their art and, and then they get together and they spend a week there on the national mall. And, and these are third world countries and you know, yeah, all these kids show up. Well, in 2020, uh, the virtual world society, the international child art foundation are working on a project where the kids are going to create what we're calling VR heaven that they, what is their happy place? And uh, they will do the elements of that and what they see in their own mind. And mm-hmm. um, and then when it comes to the National Mall, we start working together with them to make virtual worlds around what they see as their right. happy place. Yeah. And the whole idea is, is to, to show them that they can create these kind of places uh, where they solve the problems that they're having in their own community and things like that. And with the, the idea of empowering them yeah. to do that. And oh, back by the way, back to the um, learning living room. Yeah. One of the things that is a piece of this we'd like to see is connecting all those families together mm. who are in the learning living room. Uh, okay. And actually creating like a, a community for right. them, basically. And that they look at pervasive problems. What can we do about global change? What can we do about um, water? What yeah. can we do about our Mother Earth who is ailing? You know, those kinds of pervasive things where we can cause movements mm-hmm. to, to start happening. Yeah. Wow. People working together, realizing they're not by themselves. Yeah, and I that just gave me a moment because I... I've never thought about connecting families across distances. I think when we think about connecting people, it's almost like you imagine whether it's friends meeting each other or maybe people who are lonely who meet someone that they like. Uh, But connecting families is really interesting because if the kids become friends and the parents become friends and they live in totally different cultures, you immediately are truly connecting the world in a way that can't be done right now yeah, that just doesn't really exist you're like blurring lines between cultural identity and yeah and like and, who and your name na- who your neighbor and what your neighborhood is yeah mm-hmm. one of the things in the end let's face it it's really not about the technology in the end it's about the people yeah and in particular about the people who generate the worlds that people will experience mm-hmm. the world builders 
And the world builders are the artists and the creative people. Yeah. And that's why we've done this, launched this platform. We make reality. We make reality is all about bringing together this community mm-hmm. that have don't have a community yet. Yeah. I mean, the, certainly the hardware people have communities. The guys that I've been working with, you know, all these years have been, yeah. it's all been all about the hardware and about the computer graphics software and the engines and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we have the medium built. What we don't have is the message for the medium. Mm-hmm. And the message in the medium is going to be more important than the medium itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't care how good a TV you have. <laughs> how smart it is and how many pixels you have and OLED or LED, whatever it is. It's going to be no better than the programs you are able to see on it. Yeah. And so we want to develop that kind of community of those people who are the heart of what it's about. Yeah. The heart of the world building so that they can find each other. And so they can work together and say, "This I'm interested in, in working on this kind of project," uh, you know. And they find like-minded people. And it's sort of what happens in hackathons, but this is something that that happens on a more um, extended basis. Yeah, it's a way to try to open it up so that it's not just these in-person um, small communities that are all kind of separated. It's right. to network and interconnect these people around the world. Right. So. And eventually, we we uh, the 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 society becomes more uh, a gathering of those kind of people and providing education, you know, of what what can be done, and to get folks excited and become so help them become aware of some of the new things that, that are happening. Do you have a particular visual in your mind of what success looks like to you like when you feel like you'll have gotten virtual world society to a place where you feel like you've you've made it i would like to see a time where we have a i'd use a um you know something that we understand today um a way where we can gather people to share their ideas and mm-hmm. in a forum uh, from wherever they are. And they can be in a place together and we can go together to visit other places. Mm. It's sort of like triaging the world, you know, a yeah. triaging problems where we can get these gatherings that move around and, and provide the ideas and help and support for, for um, um, you know, uh, people who or, or places that have needs. Yeah. It would be, uh, I don't think television is going to go away. I think it'll be around for many, many years in the future. It may transform in terms of basically merging with VR. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where you're Integrating now. Integrating with these technologies. You're just watching yes. TV and we're, we're basically there. Somebody else's yes. living room. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And so the, um, the idea of having a channel, a virtual world society channel, mm on television, um, I think by the time we get to that point, then we will have, will be sustainable. Mm. Yeah. And to where it have a life, you know, that goes beyond, you know, the, uh, the participants, yeah. you know. Having experienced the VR throughout the times, right? Like there's different lulls and different investment and, uh, and all of that. 
Do you have any advice or thoughts for people who right now might feel a bit tired, like we had kind of discussed before we recorded, where there isn't investment comes and goes, uh, but and there's always going to be these in between times where people aren't quite sure what to do and how to stay inspired. Do you have any thoughts about that based on your experience having just followed it for so long? Well, what has sustained me over all these years of ups and downs Mm -hmm. is this profound belief and that is so good, Mm -hmm. that is so powerful that we can't not ignore it. And regardless of the resources that become available and, you know, and they are going to continue to, to wax and wane, I think. Yeah. And uh, we aren't there yet. But it's about it's all about what you believe in mm-hmm. and, and what's inside your heart. Because in the end, that's what it's got to be about. You have to be on fire yourself <laughs> uh, in order to light a fire in others. And uh, yeah, there there may be times when that, fire sort of burns down a little bit and they're just the embers there, but you want to continue to blow on the fire on the coals, blow on the coals of the fire to, to keep that alive. And the way you do it is to learn all that you can about it and experience it, um, and use every opportunity to experience it Mm -hmm. and do, and everybody's going to have their own journey uh, in the end about not only in life, but in how, you intersect with these tools that we have in our life and um, um, to continue to just stay excited about it. And, and I think that's where, you know, the, the elements, the angels, all those things out there combine to help us. Yeah. You know, if we really believe something and that we really have that in our heart it's going to happen. It's sort of like this huge magnet in the sky. You kind of culminate it. Yeah, it sort of pulls it together. It with That's her. right. Like you said, going back to the beginning. <laughs> That's right. You're creating this, and um, you're creating uh, not only this for yourself but for others mm-hmm. that can uh, can uh, appreciate it. And so it's all about the this power that we have within us. Of I mean, we use the term faith, but it's it's it's. Uh, it's, that's what it is, basically. That you believe yeah. in something, you hope for something, you you want to see that that uh, happen. And uh, I mean, I remember as a child, my my mother was just completely exasperated with me when because rather than riding my tricycle, mm-hmm. I would take it apart <laughs> and put it back together again. You know, that was more fun to me than riding the tricycle. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's what they did, though. They, yeah. they basically supplied me with stuff yeah. that I could take apart and put back together, mm-hmm. and that um, each of us have our own direction that we'll take there. And encouraging mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of things, yeah. those kinds of explorations. Tom, thank you so much.
thanks for listening to this episode of The Reality Quest. Yeah, and thanks to Tom for taking the time with us. That was amazing. All right, well, everyone should follow us in all the places. Rate us five stars and then tell us what you really think in person. <laughs> yeah, I think especially because we're just getting started those reviews and yeah, we, of the content are really helpful. Right yeah, now. we definitely need it. Um, so subscribe. <laughs> rate us hopefully positively um other places you can find us so um you can find us on all of the podcast platforms or if you can't find us let us know and you can also go to our website realityquestpodcast.com you can find what platforms we're on there you can shoot Mm -hmm. us an email let us know your thoughts or ask us to get on a new platform if we're not on your typical one we also have social media accounts now oh yeah for twitter you can follow us at reality underscore quest and then we have Instagram, which is at Reality Quest Podcast. And we also have a Patreon now. So if you want to support us, you like us that much, um, that you want to see this keep going and flourish into a wonderful, amazing endeavor. Um, Jay and I need sandwiches. Yeah, we need coffee. <laughs> we really need coffee. I That's think true. if you actually go and check our website right now, there is a link to a Patreon account. Um, where you can buy us coffee, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to think through more tiers and uh, rewards and stuff for our patrons over time. Mm-hmm. But right now we're just starting with that. Yeah, and we appreciate mm-hmm. everyone's support because we're just doing this doing this as a side passion project and there's a lot of effort that goes into it. So Out of the good of our hearts. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> and one last thing is if you want to follow Tom, oh, so yeah. I'm not yeah. sure how active he is on t- social media. He's not really active on social media, but you can support the Virtual World Society mm-hmm. uh, by going and looking them up. That's right. The Google machine. Right. It's virtualworldsociety.org, I think. Yes. Yes. It's spelled in all the ways you would expect. Uh-huh. And uh, you can get yeah. involved there, too. So you don't you can go on and donate and all that support them that way. But there's also like you can actually get involved. Yeah, you, you can, can you join can the group, essentially. Subscribe to a membership basically with them to support them on an annual basis as well. They're doing lots of good things. And uh, yeah, definitely a good endeavor to get behind. Right. So, yeah. Thanks, everyone.